podcast about product management, user experience design, technology, and more. This is Product by Design. All right, welcome back to another episode of Product by Design. I am Kyle, and this week we are joined by another awesome guest, Niha Bansal. Welcome to the show, Niha. Thank you so much, Kyle. Very happy to be here. Yeah, super excited to talk with you. And I think we've got a lot of really, really great topics to cover. But let me introduce Niha real briefly, and then you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Niha is the head of merchant growth and monetization for B2B commerce at Google, where she's leading efforts to build the next $1 billion plus B2B business, a zero to one product, which I'm super excited to talk about because building zero to one, building from scratch is a super exciting thing. Uh, And she's also spearheaded many diversity and inclusion initiatives, worked as a management consultant and had PM experience. So Niha, that overview probably doesn't do you justice. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you for that intro, Kyle. Maybe I'll start from, you know, the beginning. Uh, So I grew up back in India in uh, in Siliguri, which is a beautiful hill station in the foothills of the Himalayas. Uh, Fabulous city. And uh, it has also now become the international trading hub because it sits at the border of India, Nepal, China, and Bangladesh. So it's uh, crazy how that city has been booming. But back during my time, it did not have enough opportunities to uh, for education and work. And that's why after my high school, I moved to New Delhi to pursue my undergrad. I studied econ and statistics. And at the end of it, I took the first job I got on campus. Didn't know any better back then, but it was in hindsight, it was a great decision because that job turned out to be a consulting job, uh, which uh, allowed me to work with a lot of financial services, helping build in-house products for them. Um, and also as part of the job, I traveled a lot. So as you can imagine, uh, consultants in general uh, move travel Monday to Friday. For this company, the travel was more international. So I've lived in uh, Johannesburg for a year and a half. I've lived in China, in Toronto, New York, um, also London. So yeah, it was a bit all over and it was really fun. (laughs) Did that. And then uh, once I was in uh, on a project, this was based out of Wilmington, Delaware. I just felt that I was getting tired of building something for like six to six months to a year and then moving on to the next client. And, um, that's when I realized that what changes do I need to make to be able to be in the organization for long and actually grow the business on top of the product versus just building a product and moving on. So I decided to pursue an MBA. I went to Columbia University to uh, learn more about product management. Uh, phenom- that was a phenomenal experience. As During my time at Columbia, I interned in a beer analytics startup in Tel Aviv. Again, very cool experience. I lived in Tel Aviv for uh, four months then, and uh, the company has now gotten acquired by Ab InBev. Uh, they do beverage analytics for small and medium businesses. Uh, and that experience made me realize that, yes, product is what I want to do for the uh, rest of my life. So after that, I came back to Columbia and recruited with a few uh, uh, tech companies, and I got an offer from Google. And, uh, and since then, I've been at Google. Awesome. Yeah. That is quite the background of, of all the places. So of all the places that you have lived over that time, is there a place that was your favorite? I will 
would say my uh, favorite wa- uh, is definitely uh, Tel Aviv, and the second was Cape Town. Okay. Yeah, Those, I, I think I love beaches in the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Those both sound like great places. I have not been to either yet, but they both sound really, really nice. You know, um, I wherever I go, I pin all the places on my Google Maps that when someone else needs to go, I just share it. So I'm happy to just share that link and it just tells you everything that you need to visit when you're in the cities. Awesome. That, that's a really great idea. So speaking of that, uh, you know, obviously ton of experience and, and I want to dive into a bunch of those things, but outside of the office and outside of a lot of what you're doing right now, you know, what else do you like to do? So, um, yeah, there are two things that I uh, invest a lot of my time in outside office. One is I invest in startups as an angel investor, uh, primarily in consumer tech uh, for mobility and micro social networks. Um, as part of this, I also consult founders on how to find product market fit so that they can go out and raise uh, VC funding. Besides angel investing, uh, I also spend a lot of time mentoring and coaching people on how to get into tech or product management. Um, in fact, I have the, I have, uh, I, I'm happy to share my bio link and folks can book time one-on-one directly with me. As part of that effort, money that I raise through the coaching, uh, coaching, uh, you know, interactions, I donated to Narika, which is a nonprofit focused on helping survivors of domestic violence in the U.S. Awesome. Yeah, we will definitely put that link in the show notes for uh, the course that you're doing and some of the other work, because I think that that is sounds in, one incredibly, incredibly good and a great place for for people to learn more about that. So sounds awesome. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that as well. But as we kind of dive into it, uh, you know, I want to uh, dive into a little bit more about your, your journey into, you know, product management, because you, you you talked a little bit about it, how you got into it, uh, you know, the kind of the journey from consulting into, you know, the, the love of product and, you know, what you're doing now. Can you tell us a little bit more about you know kind of that end stage like you know what was it that you know really kind of got you into what you're doing right now with Google Absolutely so you know uh, when I during in business school uh, I have always uh, until that point of time I was very focused on analytics I, I that was my love you know math and numbers because uh, my background was in econ and statistics and I did a lot of that in my role as a consultant as well and uh, when I went to Tel Aviv, there I joined the team. I was hired uh, to work in the analytics team, uh, where I worked closely with the data science and uh, and the analysts to tease out insights from all the data that was being gathered. That was fun, but as I found myself in meetings with the product, um, product head of product and the rest of the product team, I got this opportunity to go and talk to users. Just because, you know, I was curious, I would just tell the the product uh, p- people at that point, like, hey, can I just come along with you? And it was those interactions with the users that uh, made me fall in love with their job and not mine. Right. And I was like, wow, you know, this is exactly what I want to do, because the joy of talking to someone and just asking why five times to unpeel what is really the pain point that they are facing and what can I build? that would help make their lives better uh, made it so much more exciting than just crunching numbers and building models. 
right? Uh, so that's why uh, that's that's the moment when I uh, talked to Noam. She's the uh, she was the head of product back then, and now she's a VP at Slack. She, I asked her, hey, can I work more closely with you? And she was like, yes, why don't you do that, right? So then I switched roles, and since then uh, I worked in product, and I loved it. So that's when I came back to business school. I felt like I knew exactly what I want to do next. And uh, Google became uh, a, a very good fit because as I spoke to more and more PMs at Google, this, uh, this uh, focus on the user at Google is phenomenal. And that's why it felt like the right fit. Often you will hear PMs building products without even speaking to the users, right? It could be due to lack of time, due to lack of resources or no access to the users you're building for. But at Google, the emphasis on making sure product managers understand the users and having that access was huge. So that's why Google worked out really well. In my first team at Google was Google Analytics, where I built um, the, uh, the insights. One of the products was insights. Even that product required a lot of user interaction and therefore it was fun. So that's how the journey kind of really helped take uh, shape. That's awesome. <clears throat> Really, really interesting, uh, especially I, I feel like so many of us get into product management in so many different ways, uh, especially from a little while ago and, and kind of come into it from different backgrounds, from, you know, finding that, you know, we really love what uh, kind of that interaction with users and with technology teams and solving some of these problems. Um, I'm interested, you kind of touched on this a little bit in your experience working with a lot of companies across you know your your early background and then in in your current role what have been some of the things that you've seen uh and some of the differences between you know maybe how Google is approaching uh product management versus how some of the other companies that you've worked with before approach product management what have been some of the the good things that you've seen and some of the bad things that you've seen in each of those mhm yeah Great question. Let's see. I think some of the good things on the way Google approaches is one that I kind of referred to, right? Which is uh, about the focus on the user. I was, I've always been very impressed on how Google has built an ecosystem whereby as a product manager, you have access to users for as and when you need, right? We have an, a massive UX recruitment team. We have all the autonomy to reach out to customers yourself if you need to. This was hard when I've worked in uh, in the previous startups I've worked in. I think it's also when you say that, hey, you're calling from Google, people are willing, willing to pick up the phone. So it does help for sure. I'm not going to deny that. So that's one. The second awesome thing about Google is the people. There is a culture that you want to work on something that really excites you. And that is um, super important for you, uh, especially you as a manager as well, to make sure that you give the freedom to the people on your team to pick and choose what they want to work on and then make sure that they're happy uh, about what they're working on. So I'd say that the culture is very, um, is so such that you care about people and your coworkers, right? Making sure uh, that you are respect, uh, you respect each other, the opportunity and the users as well. And then the final thing is uh, that I think that another thing that's really good at, good for Google is the processes. Over the 20, almost 25 years, Google has really defined processes in a way that has taken away the tax that you pay as you grow as a company, right? 
So those processes allow us to build at scale, but also reducing the risks to the to an extent possible. Obviously, things still break, but we have we learned we have learned from each other's uh, prior mistakes, and we try to make sure that we make process changes as needed to keep the ball rolling. Now, um, what you know, the bad side, like what I think of. Uh, is a challenge at Google is definitely, you know, with processes comes, uh, if you have more processes, it does result in a slower speed, right? We, uh, lo- launching does take more time than it would take at a startup or smaller organizations. Uh, but I will say that I, in my journey within Google has been to find smaller and smaller products. And that has, uh, and that is an option, which you could totally, that's a path you could totally take. Which does reduce your launch uh, launch process time that you spend in that preparation and planning. Yeah, I think that'll be it. Okay, no, that that's really really good, and you've kind of touched on, you know, some of the the problems that we probably see not just across Google but across a lot of large organizations. Uh, you know, once you reach a certain scale, there's the obviously the benefit of that scale, like you mentioned, you know, being able to have processes and infrastructure and architecture in place to be able to do things. But then there's also the heaviness of the infrastructure and architecture and processes that are in place that, that tend to slow things down. Is that what you found, um, you know, in, in working with a variety of different companies, both large and small, or, or what have been some of the different differences you've seen between, you know, a startup and a really large organization? Maybe I, I'll speak as a, from a product manager lens. From a product perspective, there are uh, three main differences that I've noticed working, uh, you know, practicing product in Google versus other uh, companies. One is the mindset of focus on long term versus versus short term. So Google culture pushes us to think about the long term impact, the second degree and third degree impact of the decisions we make. Unlike in a smaller organization, you're always thinking about what we need to launch to hit your top line goals, right? So you are not thinking about what impact does it have on the industry, let alone, you know, on your sister products within the same company. We we are pushed to think about that. And for me, as I've grown in my uh, product role, that's the most exciting part. So the long-term and short-term mindset, I think is a huge difference. Second is design centric. I kind of referenced it before. Uh, at Google, we are always thinking about how do we make our products intuitive. I joke that maybe it's because we're not great at customer support. <laughs> so we're always thinking, how do we just make sure the user understands it and never has to ever call us? Which I think is a great thing for user facing you know, consumer products. And then the third thing is um, access to customers, like I said. You know, even in smaller startups, often it's hard to go talk to the customer. The customer may not give you time, but at Google, the resources exist. We have a massive user recruitment team that you can collaborate with. You can call people on your own and have those conversations and you're expected to do that. Like personally, I follow a rule of talking to at least three customers every week, whichever product I'm working on. And that has helped me a lot in terms of bringing in the voice of the user in the conversations I'm having with engineering, design, et cetera. No, that, that's really, really awesome. And I love what you talked about as far as the, you know, thinking through not just the immediate impacts, but what are, you know, some of the downstream impacts to 
to what you're building and what you're doing. And obviously at a large tech organization that has such a reach, that's a super important thing, but it, it's a really important thing as well for, for any of us building products and you know, being able to think through, you know, what are not just like you mentioned the first degree impacts, but you know, what happens after that, you know, once we do this, you know, what's the next thing. And, and then what's the, the second and the third how this impacts other areas in the business, other areas in the market. Um, and, and I think that that's a super important thing that we probably don't think about enough um, in both in product management and just in, in our businesses and organizations in general. And I'm, I'm interested in, you know, how, how, how do you kind of put the focus on that? How do you talk about that? And how do you make sure that as you're doing things, you're, you're, you know, not losing sight of, Hey, we need to be thinking about not just the immediate impact, but you know, what comes after that? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. So how do we think about, how do we keep an eye on the long-term focus, yeah. right? The process that we've been following at, uh, within, you know, the products I've been part of is, uh, we start off with a vision. So at the highest level, the company, uh, for example, I've uh, I've spent a lot of time in the ads org. So at the ads level, we have a vision. What, where do we want to be in 2025? Yeah. And we, I think we wrote that back in 2021. So having that five-year plan has been extremely, extremely powerful because we now all about like 10 to 12,000 of us are very laser focused and we know where we need to go in five years. Right. And then that vision has been broken down into multiple pillars with very specific metrics attached to them. So having those metrics tells us that, okay, this is the metric that we are going to measure our success by. And these are the targets that where we want to get to where we are right now, where we want to get to by the end of 2025. So, and then what we, we did this exercise where we broke down the targets at an annual level. We said, okay, if we are at X, where do we want to be by end of 2022, 2023, so on and so forth. It, um, of course, you know, it might sound like, oh, is this so rigid? Like, do you really know what's going to happen in five years? Uh, and the truth is no, often we do not know a lot, but this type of exercise also creates a lot of room for changes. So it's, it's not like we wrote that in 2021 and we'd never talk about it again. We actually reevaluate our strategy every, you know, six months to one year, depending on the size of the product and, and discuss what changes need to be made. So there's always, uh, uh, you know, a lot of room for changes as well as we move along. And then once the, and then it's on the individual teams who are, who there are owners for each of the metrics. And then those teams come up with a much more detailed roadmap of how are we going to hit those metrics, right? That's where we say we're going to build ABC to achieve our goals. And that process, I think, is uh, is what keeps our eye on the long term. So, you know, for my particular team, because we have that clarity, I'm able to guide my team and say, hey, here's where what we need to hit and here are the investments we're going to make. How is it going to impact in second and third year? And that's something we actually have to write down. So I think Google's been doing a phenomenal job at adopting the Amazon culture of where it all started, right? Where you write documents and also read them in silent at the beginning of all meetings. 
So that's also becoming pretty uh, prevalent within Google. And that writing culture has been phenomenal to provide clarity across the organization and drive that alignment. Yeah. You, you've touched on so many, so many amazing points there. And I absolutely love it because I think that uh, too often we get caught in the tactical and, and that's a common thing that I've seen in, in multiple places, but starting, like you said, with, you know, what is the vision that we're trying to achieve and then breaking that down into, you know, what are the steps to achieve that? And then giving ownership to each of the teams to say, now you own how we're going to achieve, you know, the, the next little bit of this and, and the metrics associated with it in order for us to achieve kind of that long-term vision. And then obviously still having the flexibility to, to work within that, but really knowing where you're going, how you're going to get there, and then being able to execute on that. I think it's just, it's such a powerful thing that is in theory, so, so easy to talk about and, and so important, but also it's, it, I've found it, it's, it's difficult to do because we, we can often get caught up in just the executing and just the, let's just get stuff done as opposed to why are we getting stuff done? Where is it yeah. that we're trying to go to? Yeah. And I will say that, you know, um, we, it, even though it has, we've been doing this for so many years, there are a lot of complications in getting this right. For example, when it comes to measuring, can you really measure this metric at such a high level? Is that actually possible? So, you know, we can talk at length about measurement, uh, with, uh, but it's, it's hard. Sometimes you just don't know how do you actually measure it, especially, uh, you know, um, and it's even harder for metrics where we, where Google cares a lot about is like user happiness, right? We do have metrics around that. We run surveys and uh, uh, in the in the product, outside the product, etc. But often it's very hard to be able to do that in a meaningful way. And then how do you really find out like that? Those metrics are the output metrics, and then you have to define input metrics. So that again takes a lot of brainstorming pulling people in one room and thinking about what are the input metrics that would best influence it and we want to put a pin on. So yes, a lot of alignment, a lot of brainstorming, but I think that's uh, that's the fun part of uh, building in tech. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So as you know, as, as people are listening to this and thinking about, you know, I, I, I for example, really want to work in a, a big tech organization, a company like Google or like Amazon, like you were talking about, or, or like a lot of these others, what would you say would be some of the most important things to be thinking about for product managers right now who are interested in, you know, getting into some of these, these larger technology organizations? Yeah. I'm, you know, there is so much advice out there on this particular topic. So I'll just say two things. Uh, one is from an experience perspective, start building your portfolio of products that you have contributed and you've built yourself, right? That would be one. The more you, it's like getting your hands dirty. The more you've gotten that uh, cycles in, the more uh, you're able to, you learn and the more you're, you're able to talk about it. And the second, I would say, just from like pure cracking, getting through the interview process, because I know how frustrating it could be, especially at big tech, uh, get, do as many mock interviews as possible. There is nothing, there's no replacement for mock interviews. And nowadays there are tons of amazing companies out there where you could actually just find someone to do mock interviews with you. So I encourage people to take advantage of that. Yeah, that's definitely great advice, especially for, for companies where 
the interview process is extremely rigorous. And if you don't practice it uh, and, and get those reps in, like you talked about, it will be very, very difficult because there is, and there are certain skills and certain, certain things you need to be able to do in order to kind of get through that process. So I think that's really, really good advice. You know, we, we talked a little bit about this a, a little earlier, but you know, the idea that there are a lot of processes in place, which can be good and bad, but I, I'm interested, you know, launching at scale as you build a product and, and as you take something from zero to one, how do you get ready to launch it when it has, you know, potentially so much reach and so many users? What, what does that look like when it's not just something that's small scale, but when it is really, really at a large scale? I can, you know, uh, would it help if I share the launch process at Google just as an Please. example? Yeah. Hey, so let's see. We follow the step of like, uh, and I briefly referred to it before, the step of starting with the vision, strategy, and roadmap, right? We have a quarterly planning process where uh, every quarter we spend about two weeks to plan for rest of the quarter. The road, the vision and strategy is done annually. Vision strategy, sorry. The vision strategy and roadmap planning is done annually. And then we have an OKR planning process that takes the roadmap and says, all right, how do what needs to be delivered in quarter one, two, three, and four? Now, within each quarter, every team has a different process depending on what stage of the product they are in. For uh, established products, you would you could see that you would uh, plan for launches that would happen once a quarter. But in my current team, we actually launch in sprints. So we have two-week sprints and every two weeks we, we send out, uh, we have goals that we meet uh, every two weeks. So that's the overarching view. Now, just going one level deeper, let's say for a particular OKR, if you have to take something from the very early stage, like from zero to one, you would start with a lot of user conversations to, which we call as UX research. So it could be led by UX researcher, but often, you know, I as a PM, I'm, I'm always very involved. I will listen into the conversations. And sometimes we don't have funding for UX research. That also happens, even though it's Google. <laughs> so that's when uh, uh, product managers go out there and talk to users themselves. And um, it's a lot of user conversations, asking why, why, and why multiple times to really hone in on the pain point. Once we have an understanding of that, we write a document called the product requirement document. That's where we describe the pain points, the opportunity. We talk about what are some potential solutions and why, why not? What else have we thought about? Could we just use something existing instead of building it from scratch? We have all of that discussion and brainstorming, and then we open it up for feedback where everybody cross-functionally from engineering, design, sales, marketing, finance, everyone gets a chance to ask questions. And I love it when people actually poke as many holes as possible in that, right? And you don't want to be kind in that stage because, you know, you, you would, I would rather find out challenges and issues earlier on versus when once we get into the development mode. Once that is done, we move into UX design if it's a user-facing product, let's say. So we'll get into UX design, do a lot of uh, design iterations and brainstorming. And once we have a design that uh, is aligned with the requirements for the MVP version, then we would go into the development. Uh, we would go into engineering back in uh, engineering design. So depending on the feature, if it's a lightweight feature, we could maybe just go into development. But typically at Google, we always write a doc 
which says, hey, here's how the engineering design is going to work. Because as you can imagine, there is always a lot of dependencies on existing infrastructure. So you want to make sure that people who own those infrastructures are aware that you are creating a new dependency. So we and that's when we get input from uh, all multiple teams. Uh, and then once the design is signed off, then we will go into the development mode. And then after development, you know, you do that. Then you once you have a, a prototype, you do bug bashing and lots of bug bashes. That's another of my favorite stage where uh, you get to break the thing you've built. And um, you, we do a lot of prioritization at that stage as well, that what actually needs to be addressed, what is launch blocking or not. Once you have that understanding, you know, you fix the bugs and then you, uh, uh, in parallel as a PM, you start also working with marketing uh, and sales teams, write com docs, et cetera. And all of those things need to align for a launch moment. Yeah. Is that what you were looking for? Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's a really, really great overview of what it looks like uh, and, and definitely jibes with some of the larger product launches that I've been involved in. None quite at the scale that I think that you have done, though, which is is super fascinating to talk yeah. about. Yeah. You know, when I joined Google, I one of my mentors, uh, he gave me this checklist of 50 things to do for every launch. And I still swear by it. It's so helpful to just not get, I need to go through all of these. Obviously, you have to customize it based on the product you're working on, but it works well, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. No, having, especially for, for bigger uh, launches, uh, b- having some sort of checklist and making sure that you're, you're going through it and getting like appropriate sign off from, from like different areas. Like, Hey, we've, we've considered all of these different things is it makes it so much better and makes it so that you, you don't miss anything and that everybody is understands, you know, where, where is it? You know, what, at what stage are we at? And, uh, you know, when, when is this thing coming? So super important stuff. I, I love it. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about uh, diversity and inclusion, which is something that you've you have been a, a part of and helped drive initiatives for. So, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. So, my um, early on when I joined Google, I was I started getting outreach from people to talk and you know think about what is my opinion on about the diversity and inclusion, and I was pushed to think about it a bit more strongly because I am, uh, you know, I belong to many minority groups myself. So what is it that matters to me? You know, where is it that I really want to make an impact is a question I asked myself. And that's where um, the area that I decided to focus on was how do I get women without engineering degrees to get into product? Because I'm one of those myself. And, uh, I've done it. So I just refuse to believe that you, that anyone else cannot do it. So with this uh, goal in mind, I try, I drove a lot of initiatives within Google. For example, one big one was uh, Google had differing uh, uh, requirements on having an engineering degree as uh, undergrad for intern versus full-time. For full-time, you didn't need it because, and that's how I got in. But for interns, they had it on the job description, which was very confusing to when I met with students. So I worked with the recruiting team and we ha- we launched this effort to say, do we really need it? And then the conclusion was we do not because we have a lot of stellar PMs without an engineering background. So we were successfully able to get rid of that requirement 
And that actually resulted in a lot of uh, people coming, applying for product roles without an engineering degree. And as you can imagine, uh, uh, the ratio of women pursuing engineering is still low. So this, as a side effect, also resulted in more women applying for product roles. That was one. Uh, and then this, you know, the few other things I do is uh, I uh, I talk about how uh, how do you work as a PM with that, even if you don't have an engineering degree, and why it does not matter. So I've spoken at multiple conferences, such as Women in Product, Google's Internal Women in Product Conference. I mentor a lot of women PMs at Google as well. And um, I do a lot of interview prep for people who want to transfer ladders from, uh, you know, sales and tech, et cetera, into product. So I do, uh, I help in as many ways as I can with this one goal in mind. That's, that's so good. And, and I love it. And thinking way further back down the line, I think that's so important because like you said, you know, it really starts earlier and having, you know, some of those requirements that are, you know, may seem benign, but end up being exclusionary, um, like certain types of degrees where, you know, it's still a very specific group of people who are pursuing those types of degrees and requiring that has kind of that upstream effect of, of limiting what the pool looks like and, you know, going through and, and, and adjusting that is so important. Um, I'm interested too, in, in your thoughts on how can, you know, we do better in product management generally uh, to be uh, more diverse and inclusive and, and improve our diversity and inclusion? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I will say there are two things from my perspective. One is to eliminate the fear that to be a PM, you have to be in a computer science engineer. I think it's total BS. And uh, I think this was, uh, this. I, there's a beautiful book about this. I'll, I'll pull it up and send you the name of it. Yeah. This book talks about how back in the day, when Google formed the product manager role, somebody just put it in the JD as a bullet that should have computer science background. Probably it was an engineer who wrote it themselves. So, but nobody ever questioned it. Unknowingly, this had a massive impact for generations to come. So, and therefore you don't see a lot of women in, uh, in, in product positions. So it frustrates me to the core. And therefore I think it's important for product as a community to talk about it so that they can be more inclusive versus being like, oh, I'm here because I did engineering, which I think is not applicable for most products. Second thing is, uh, you know, eliminate the need to be always available. So the, the, the race to respond to every ping email within five minutes, I think scares a lot of uh, people out of PM roles, especially the ones who are looking for flexibility. And women happen to be in that uh, category as they uh, adopt parenthood. And, you know, other priorities come up. I, um, I believe that if you are someone who always responds within five minutes, you're not generating ideas or meaningful work yourself. You know, at Google, we call this as you're just an email generator, shifting information from one desk to another. So therefore, how can we shift the culture to being, uh, to understanding that what is the accepted level of communication and the speed of communication will allow more people to become a part of product. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I absolutely love it. And the kind of applying the lens of diversity and inclusion to it, I think is, is a great way to look at it. Um, I mean, for me personally, I, 
hate having to, I hate trying to respond to things quickly. And I'll, I actually, I often try to condition uh, groups that I work with to not get a response from me very quickly ever, just because I don't want to be the kind of person that is responding uh, or constantly having to be at my desk responding to things. Cause like you said, that's just not, it's not a viable way to do meaningful work, but then looking at it from the perspective of if, if that is the mindset, then it, it starts to exclude a lot of people who may not have, may not feel like they have the ability to not do that. And so setting the right expectations around that is so critical, not just for the ability to get work done, which I think is super important, but for not excluding people who may not be able to do that sort of thing. So I, I, I love it. I love, I plus 1000 to all of that. I think that's absolutely great. You know, I wanted to get your advice. You know, you, you mentor a lot of people, you, you help people in products, you know, what's something that you wish you knew earlier in your career when you were just starting out? So I'll be very candid and I'll just say it. One thing I wish I knew early on was do not waste time with the uh, bad managers. I think um, I have spent nine to 12 months with awful managers, you know, in consulting and once even at Google, hoping that we would find a harmonious way to work with each other. I received a lot of coaching from my own mentors and I've learned that that never happens. So my advice is as soon as you know, there is, it's not a good fit between you and your manager. Don't try to optimize for performance review cycle, that bonus, or how is it going to reflect on me because I'm leaving early? Just leave. It's never going to work out. And you're only going to make yourself feel worse about having wasted valuable time in your life working with somebody. It's not a great fit. Um, I, I cannot uh, give enough uh, like pluses to this one because um, I've, I've very recently gone through the exact same thing where mm -hmm. it is just it is not worth the, uh, the difficulty and the, uh, just emotional and psychological heaviness that comes with trying to, uh, stick with a role just because you don't want to leave early or you don't want to kind of move when it's not working, especially when you have a very, very bad manager that it's just not going to work out with. And, uh, you know, I, I had something very similar early in my career. And, and like you said, tried to, to optimize it and tried to, you know, you know, I'm going to stick through this and stick it out. And having gone through that enough, knowing now it's just, it's not worth it. it you know, even having to leave somewhere under a year be, because you have a poor manager, your life is like, it's too short to be miserable all the time. And work is too big a part of life mm -hmm. to, to be sticking around for something like that. And there, there are good managers. There are lots of good managers and good people to be working with and working for to try and stick around to something that is making you miserable. So I cannot agree with that enough. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then, you know, for, um, so this is something I wish I knew. Now, for those who are starting out in product management, I'd say get your hands dirty and do things on your own. So to share an example, when I joined Google, I was handed over a really small product back then. Analytics Intelligence was really tiny. We were about, uh, I think, four to six engineers back then. There was a vision that, hey, here's what we want to be. But the team was small. And as a result of that, I did not have any UX researcher or UX designer on the team, which I took upon as the opportunity to learn. 
So I quickly pulled together the tools, read a lot of books on these topics, took a lot of courses within Google, outside Google, and started doing this myself. This helped me in two ways. One, when uh, I still remember that conversation, a US director, uh, you know, set up time with me and she was like, hey, I hear you're doing our work. I was like, what do you mean? And then she said, I saw you've been designing on Sketch. Do you need any help? And I was like, yes, I need a lot of help. And that's when she actually staffed my project, right? Because she saw that we were able to make a ton of progress and the, the story was clear. And then the project got staffed, right? So, you, so that's a way of influencing people by doing stuff as well. It's not always just trying to ask and request for resources. So that's one. And the second thing it benefit, uh, the way it benefit, uh, it has benefited me is uh, over time now, when I have uh, teams working in each of these different domains, I'm able to ask the right question and set the right expectations. So that results in people respecting you a lot because you've done their jobs before, right? You're also able to come from a place of empathy where you know how to how, what are the challenges they are probably facing as they're working through those problem statements. So for those reasons, I always advise people that early on when you're starting, try to do as much of the different jobs that you're doing. Because as a PM, really, you are responsible for the end-to-end -end success, right? So do, do the marketing, write the marketing com docs, write down your own tweets and blog posts, you know, do the US research, do design as much as you can uh, learn early on. It's, it serves you really well for the rest of your career. Absolutely agree with that. That is 100% uh, prepares you for all the different areas of product because it is an all-encompassing thing. Uh, well, Niha, this has been an amazing conversation. I have kind of two wrap-up questions that we normally do uh, to end things. But before we get to that, you know, where can people connect with you, find out more about you and, and the things that you're working on? Absolutely. So, um, one is I'm actually working on launching a product management course. So if people want to get early access, they can sign up on the form that's uh, that's there with the details of this uh, interview. And uh, I am also always available there if you want to have a conversation about uh, uh, your career in tech or product management or want to set time to consult on uh, on your startup, always there. So there's also going to be a link to set up time on, uh, in, on my bio link. I'll share that too. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. We'll have all those links in the show notes. So check those out. And uh, this has been absolutely great. So uh, check out those things uh, to connect with Nihan and the things that she's doing. So final questions that we kind of wrap up with uh, are just some shout outs and, and gripes if you have them, but anything that you have watched or read recently that uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, absolutely. So let's see. Mm, I love reading uh, founder autobiographies. So one of the recent ones I read is Hangry. It's a journey of Grubhub by Mike yeah. Evans. I think it's super cool how he contrasts between doing, uh, uh, you know, biking around the country along, uh, in parallel with uh, starting Grubhub and take, making the business it is today. Fantastic book. Highly recommend. Then I've also read uh, recently The Cold Start Problem by Andrew Chen. Mm -hmm. uh, that's another book that really helps solidify the concept of an atomic network very useful for folks looking to take a product from zero to one. How do you identify that really, really niche user segment and thus to prove product market fit? What's your exit criteria? How do you scale beyond that? Fantastic book. Awesome. Um, yeah. 
And, and I guess watching, I'm actually right now watching YouTube videos of Think School. They take like current topics as case studies and deep dive into it. So again, another very cool uh, uh, channel to follow. Okay. Awesome. Well, yeah. We'll put those links in the show notes as well, because I will have, and I'll have to put those books on my list. I haven't read those yet. So those sound like really good ones. Um, all right. And finally, are there any products that you're using right now that you, you've found that you've liked or, or disliked? Ah, oh, okay. So let's see. I'll, I'll start with what I like. I've recently been uh, using Yelp for finding service professionals. So this Christmas break, I wanted to, to do a lot of home renovation projects and Yelp came to my rescue. So finding someone to do my recessed lighting, someone for doing some plumbing changes, all of that. It was so cool to have all of like, so uh, yeah, the feature is amazing. I think it was a newly launched feature. So that was fantastic. Um, then what I did not, uh, enjoy using that much. It's funny. So I, have you heard of next door? Yes. Yep. So I open the app every single day cause I, I'm a very social person and I w- want to be part of my neighborhood, but I feel like the app fails to delight. Right. But I still open it every day cause I'm hoping there will be something there. You know how you pop into a kitchen, to see if the food has been cooked. Yep. You know, the ingredients are there, but it's just not cooked. And I don't know why that's not happening. So uh, I, I can't wait to chat with the CPO on, of Nextdoor and just see, you know, what's going on there. But I, that would be an app that, uh, you know, I'd love to help make better. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely see that. All right. Well, Niha, again, this has been an absolutely amazing conversation. I, and I feel like we could probably dive into multiple topics for for hours at a time, uh, but really appreciate all of your insight and uh, the thoughts that you've shared with us uh, during this time. So thank you again for all of that. And again, everyone check out the links in the bio to uh, to what Niha is doing. Uh, super exciting stuff. And thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Kyle, for having me here. Such a great conversation, just stepping out from work and talking of reflecting. So this was fun. I enjoyed a lot as well. It was. All right. And thanks again, everyone, for listening. And we will talk again next time. Thanks again for listening. If you like the show, be sure to follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Twitter at prodbydesign. That's prod underscore by underscore design. You can follow me at Kyle Larry Evans on Twitter as well. If you want more product conversation, check out my newsletter, Product Thinking, at productthinking.cc. You can follow me on Medium at Kyle Larry Evans as well, or check out my Medium publication, uh, Product by Design. Thanks again.